0: Hello listeners, welcome to the Content Clearing House. I'm Brett Chisholm. I'm Josh Evans. And on today's episode, Brownsville Brit, that's me, is coming to you in the nude almost for a very special discussion about Target's giant carabiners. And also, we're going to talk about how we got started in skydiving and the sport's relationship to mental health. Thank you Jim for the inspiration for that off-top awesome blog post. And then Josh manages to put the glitches aside for a second to talk about cybernetic limbs and digital ghosts of our future's past. Does that make any sense? Yes, my bedroom is cooling down a little bit, thanks for asking. We're talking about Cyberpunk 2077. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours! Clearing house. Content clearing house. And it starts right now.
1: Brownsville Brett. Oh, God. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> How do I look?
0: <laughs> you look mostly nude from the waist up. I, I, I'm i not just nude from the waist up. I hate to oh, interesting. You. I Thank I, you for framing it this <laughs> way. <laughs> I have to release heat from all parts of my body, it's very uh, warm in Texas. I think I think you've been getting a lot of texts from me about this. I think Bree has been getting a lot of texts from me about this. Some, some sweaty texts. Yeah, and, uh,
1: I can fill I can fill people in just in, in case you're not at liberty to discuss this.
0: Well, but my, is- yeah, my 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 Airbnb host is in the adjacent <laughs> bedroom, and he's a very nice guy with a very nice home. But there's one big complaint, and I'm not going to talk about it, but Josh can fill you in. He's very frugal, and he refuses to run the air conditioning <laughs> that is in
1: goddamn Texas where it's <sighs> melt your skin off hot. And it, I can I can attest right now that Brett's skin is literally melting off his body. It's,
0: I'm glistening. Look at me. You are.
1: (laughs) And now Brett is flexing. And it looks like he just got out of a sauna. So thanks for that image, Brett.
0: That'll be seared into my eyes forever. I have been sweating in the daytime. I've been sweating at night. Uh, One of the the comments that he said was uh, he used to pay top dollar to get a detox treatment like this in California. And um, I can't think straight. It's too hot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how about we uh, just get straight into the off-top then? Well, you know, I did, before we got into it, I I did have a question for you. Um, So I was escaping the heat. I was wandering around Target today because they have wonderful air conditioning. And as you know, uh, Target, wandering around Target is America's favorite pastime. It definitely ranks higher than baseball if you were younger than... 46, I think. It's pretty much the jam. Yeah, and I I have a question for you. What is it about big carabiners that make me want to buy them whether I need them or not? What is the (laughs) deal? Some sort of carabiner freak? I I don't know if it's just me. I feel like these things, they just have such a magnetic quality to them. I'm going to text you uh, a couple of pictures here. I saw some really – okay, so this one – um, okay, it's coming to you. This is for a stroller. I don't have a stroller because I don't have a baby, but I like the look of this carabiner. Sounds like a product I might need. Oh,
1: wow. Yeah, that is – that's bigger than your hand. You know what?
0: I did include my hand for scale, but look at this yeah. other carabiner. This one, I might oh, just God. buy this.
1: The S-Beaner. yeah, that looks like it's uh, two thirds the length of your torso. What would you even? Is this like if you want to, um, if you want to hook your water bottle to like a Mack truck or something? So it looks like
0: <laughs> my six gallon jug. Yeah, I, if you I don't know. Pull would... around forty two pounds of water. I, I I wanted to run this by you because I th- I think I'm looking for permission to buy this S-Beaner. Uh, I don't have a use for it. I just want it. Brett, you're an American. You'll find a use for it. Okay. <laughs> that is what this country is built it. on. Consumerism. So you buy that gigantic s beaner If it was normal size, though, I wouldn't be as interested. I like them huge or I like them really itty-bitty.
1: I, can, I know where you're coming from. I can get behind a, a nice carabiner. Here, I'll hold yeah. up my water bottle right now. Shaking it for everyone <laughs> that's listening uh, through audio format. But I've had this carabiner on my water bottle for, I don't know, probably 20 years. And it's like it's like in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Don't Forget Your Towel. I think, I feel in our world, it's Don't Forget Your Carabiner because it really is a multi-tool. You can fasten your water bottle to stuff. You can fasten it to stuff. Yeah. You can fasten it to stuff. It's the ultimate tool.
0: <laughs> it is all right well that <laughs> settles it uh well next time we record the show i'll give you a carabiner update um, wow it, that has nothing to do with the off top though uh what i want to talk about is actually skydiving uh we are a couple of skydivologists and we have a core listenership i think of many skydivers or at least people that are skydive adjacent Skydivers um, are wives. That's who listens to this. That's, that's exactly right. So, you know, what, what inspired this in, 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 uh, in particular? I'm so hot. <laughs> um, I, what, I wanted to talk about getting how we got our start in the sport and what inspired this. So when I came out to work the last time, I got one jump in before I had to catch a flight out of Montrose, right? So it's two hours from where the drop zone is in Delta, Uh, Brie, my wife, needed to just drop me off and get back to Camp V. She had a a meeting at work in the morning, and I didn't want to have a car sitting at the airport for 20 days that couldn't be put to use. None of this really matters. My point being, somebody that I've been skydiving with for the last year or so at Delta gave me a ride to the airport, and I got to know him a little bit better. His name is Jim Armstrong. Now, he told me... About a blog post that he wrote for the blog that my drop zone has. This was news to me. I did not know how. uh, I didn't know. I didn't know Ultimate Skydiving Adventures in Delta even had a blog. Um, But it seems really awesome. They have a lot of really cool pieces. But it's all about Jim starting his skydiving journey at 52 years old. And I mean, he he got his start on. Uh, basically stumbling across a YouTube video, and ha- as he describes it, he says that there's just this guy standing on a cliff wearing what looks like a nylon flying squirrel suit, and classic you know, description of a wing suit, exactly. And he's thinking, "Is this guy going to jump? Uh, jump course. or jerk off?" <laughs> he's jump. I have not heard that. Is that a <laughs> game? People it's playing? from Point Break. Flip six three will oh. be so
1: disappointed oh, in geez. you right now.
0: Oh gosh. Um well so of course you know the uh, the these squirrel jumps and Jim's response is that he honestly thought it could be CG uh, which is a, a completely reasonable reaction if you're not familiar with wingsuit base jumping proxy flying so he started doing some digging found out like this is totally a thing and you kind of get started with skydiving you have to have a couple hundred skydives before you can start wingsuiting Um, so he just, you know, eventually that led him to booking a tandem skydive at ultimate skydiving adventures. Um, and he talks a little bit about that experience, but specifically what I want to highlight in this blog post, and I'm going to link it in the show notes. I want everybody to check it out is he talks about, uh, very candidly his, uh, his times with depression and how he's struggled with depression at times since he was 20 years old. Now mental health is something that's really really important. You know that I've had my own struggles, my own changes, my own evolutions. It's something that I would really like to contribute to reducing the stigma of it a little bit because I think, you know, we uh, I think focusing on our physical health and our mental health are both incredibly important things. And two sides of the same coin. Definitely. Absolutely. Uh, the mind and the body on that coin. And if it wasn't clear, (laughs) so, Oh, is that what we're talking about? (laughs) Brett has heat stroke. (laughs) I'm turning redder as we're talking. This is crazy. So a beat right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, so Jim, you know, what's interesting is how skydiving and the, and the name of the article, um, is how skydiving changed my life, and he specifically is talking about how skydiving sort of changed his relationship with his existence. I mean, with his actual depression. He, God, I think it does that for everyone. i You know, it's people um, that do it long enough and
1: survive. I think that's what it does. Once you get past the "Wow, this is so radical and crazy"
0: stage, I think that. I mean, it has a profound effect on your mind. Definitely. Absolutely. He talks about how it changed his relationship with, you know, limitations that he once held. He started to build a different relationship with that. And, you know, to start your skydiving journey past 50 and to watch Jim's progression, I've gotten to be a little bit of a part of that just, you know, as somebody that's jumped with him and as an observer. But I mean, Jim is the man. He is awesome. And this is at a drop zone full of awesome people. It is just he's a really, really cool dude. A drop um, zone
1: full of men, like most drop zones.
0: <laughs> there's there's the occasional <laughs> lady, and then we do have a few fluid folks as well, folks with an. Well, X. everybody wants to help the ladies learn to pack. That's for sure. <laughs> Maybe if I uh, dress like this at the drop zone more, somebody will help me pack sometime. Not recommended. Brett, you're glistening. Brownsville, Brett, I've heard about you. <laughs> Brett,
1: please get off my canopy. <laughs> You're causing sweat damage. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it's a great blog post. Uh, I I highly recommend it. Whether you're a skydiver or not, it just really resonated with me. I think it'll resonate with a lot of our listeners. Um, I give him mad respect. I want to honor that. And I maybe want to just share a little bit about my skydiving journey. I haven't really you know sat down and outlined it much because I wanted to more highlight Jim's incredible article. But you know, this skydiving has been a big part of our relationship. I mean, it's the reason the show exists. It's the reason actually my wife is in my life. Um, I mean, it's, it's brought most of my friendships into my life. So, you know, I want to hear from you and I want to hear about your start and maybe I'll share a little bit about mine too. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's awesome. I, I think that
1: skydiving, like you say, it's been such a Significant part of my life. And when I look around my room that I'm sitting in, all of this was really brought to me through skydiving because, you know, either through working various jobs in skydiving for the last 17 years or like you, meeting my wife through skydiving, Uh, my children exist because I started skydiving. I'm sure that eventually there would have been, if I had had some other life path. There might've been some different children, but you know, Isla and Violet would not have existed if it hadn't been for skydiving. So I think about like that butterfly had effect a lot
0: named Bert and Ernie.
1: I could have. Yeah. And if I had probably been would have really bad been at decision-making.
0: <laughs>
1: if- <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I would have been in the hot box with you right now. All roads well,
0: lead to Brownsville.
1: Wow. Remind me to never go driving, but I, uh, <laughs> I actually, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I was actually, I struggled with depression too. And I think maybe a lot of people did, but you know, I was for a long time, several years, I was on Paxil, which is just a really rough uh, anti-depression medicine. And uh, that was something, you know, like I had struggled with suicidal thoughts and everything, which I think might honestly just be part of growing up and it might be just... Kind of a normal part of a mind developing. Who knows? But uh, when I re- when I was in college, I I was really afraid of heights, and so I I was I was wondering, it's like, is there a place that I can go bungee jumping? Because it seemed like that was a really good way to like face being afraid of heights. And I found this place called Zero Gravity, which is a bungee jump park in Dallas, where I went to college. And uh, so I think I might have mentioned this a few times on the show, but I went there to do a bungee jump. And then I I really liked it because it was like really challenging to me. And I kept coming back to bungee jump. And eventually they were like, hey, guy, if you're going to keep bungee jumping here, you're going to have to work here. And I was like, this seems like this world's strangest job interview, but okay. And then I found out later the reason why was because most of the rides, you just stood on the ground and pressed a button. But to run the bungee tower, you had to run up seven flights of stairs every time. So basically running the top of a seven-story building. And so every time I would go bungee jump, I was making these guys, you know, get a lot of exercise in the Texas heat, but that job, you know, like it was full of, I guess like you call them thrill seekers and, uh, you know, management was a bunch of people that were into this stuff too. And for Christmas bonus, they bought everyone a tandem skydive and at skydive Dallas, who I'll be eternally grateful for as a establishment for changing my life. Uh, when you did one tandem, they offered you a second tandem for ninety bucks, and that second tandem counted as your AFF level one if you did them in the same day. And since I hadn't paid for the first tandem, I was like, "Hell yeah, I'll do another skydive for ninety bucks." And they just made it so easy to roll into becoming a skydiver. And you know, it takes a certain type of person, I think, to to make the commitment to like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go through the AFF program and I'm going to dedicate all this time and money to this. But it really changed the whole course of my life. Uh, it it made me happier, made me look at the world in a different way. It's like you were saying, it makes you think about the different kind of things that are possible. Because once you realize that humans can fly and the way the atmosphere and our bodies interact together, almost as if we were meant to fly. It makes you look at like a lot of the normal mundanity on the, on the ground in a whole different light. And it seems super cheesy and it's, uh, you know, a little Leonardo da Vinci of me, but uh, you really do always go around looking at the sky and you look at it in a different way. And through that, I was able to eventually get off of Paxel because I just started feeling better about myself and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a path that kind of derailed what I thought was going to be my life path, which I was going to school at the time to do computer graphics you know, basically like work on video games. And when I realized like, Oh, I can pack parachutes. I can maybe one day be an instructor. I kind of like dropped that entirely moved to Colorado started over basically packing parachutes and then worked my way up, you know, from parachute packer to coach, to instructor, or video flyer, and eventually getting a job at the wind tunnel. And that's a whole nother journey. Like getting a job at the wind tunnel is almost like, you know, the, the, I kind of saw it as the graduates path in
0: <laughs> the, PhD the world of skydiving. Body flight. Yeah. For because sure.
1: it's not sure. weather dependent. It's, uh, the danger level is m- much, much lower. You have a a longer longevity if you take care of your body. You know, Uh, it's just you can do you can do that without risk of breaking your legs or whatever. And so, skydiving for me has really been—it's like a—it was like a transcendent experience. Like it, it really changed who I was as a human, and I'll always be forever forever grateful for that. You know, chance encounter doing a bungee jump in college that kind
0: of changed everything for me. Well, shoot! I don't know how I'm going to top that story. <laughs>
1: well, it's not a competition,
0: <laughs> but you won. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there was a gold medal for storytelling. <sighs> Have it, but
0: don't worry—you get the gold medal for sweaty pecs. <laughs> <laughs> so slippery. Um, well, I did. You know, I actually got my start in skydiving uh, pretty young. I actually took. I was very, very lucky. I was um, a kid that traveled a lot growing up. My dad was a pilot. Um, you could say I followed in his footsteps. For the most part, I did not take the military route. Um, you know, my mom was uh, very encouraging about traveling and, and trying new activities at a certain point in her life. And I believe, I'm not 100% sure, but I think my first tandem, I was 11 years old. So I was pretty young. It was out, wow. of, the, out of the country. And then over the years, when we were traveling somewhere that allowed kids under 18 um, to skydive, I I did four tandems between the ages of like 11 and 15, 11 and 16. And then when I turned 16, actually, as like the only thing that I wanted to do was do AFF. And I got to do AFF actually at Lake Taupu. This is on the North Island in New Zealand uh, with Jeff Mundy. He's this like total legend... Uh, you know in that part of the world Um, I think he ran a drop zone for a while in either New Zealand or uh, the United Kingdom Um, but I you know went through AFF got certified broke my ankle pretty bad (laughs) right off the bat which is not a good start Um, but it kind of led me to the wind tunnel was it was it just a bad landing? Just like a yeah. high flare or something? Yeah, I think I was you know, I think it was uh exactly a high flare and I had done exactly that thing on a previous jump and somebody from another drop zone on that in that vicinity watched it and like biked over and like spoke to me and was like, "Hey, are you okay? Like you really need to like talk to, you know, a coach there who who instructed you through AFF." I said, "Jeff Mundy." He said, Oh, you know, um, you're, uh, he's like, Jeff Mundy's awesome. I'm sure he'll take care of you. And it was shortly after that um, when I I was injured. But it's it's interesting looking back on it. It created a lot of, like, psychological fears with canopy flying. I've always, in my experience, like, when I would quit skydiving for a while and then I'd go back and do a recurrency jump, I, I would try to explain, especially after I'd worked at the wind tunnel, I would try to explain – that I had experience in free fall and they did not need to really worry about that or train to that and I had a lot of mental blocks and fears with canopy flying um, that really stemmed from that injury and also just from not being an experienced canopy pilot like that little weakness at the beginning just snowballed into me later being a very insecure canopy pilot and trying to cover that up and basically you know uh, boost my ego artificially with my flying skills but just brush under the rug, a very important part of skydiving, flying the, parachute. the most important part. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, it was uh, it took a very, very long time. It actually took I basically quit skydiving. I quit base jumping. I sold all my gear. I thought that chapter was close. I talked about getting back into it every summer, but, you know, was always traveling or there's always other priorities or I was too busy or whatever the usual excuses are. And then, you know, in the last two years when I wasn't able to fly airplanes and I was really trying to bring some a spark of joy, a spark of happiness back into my life, I just went back to action sports and went back to skydiving and said this was something that really brought me so much joy, some of my best memories, some of my best friends in life. Um And so I went out to Delta at Ultimate Skydiving Adventures and said the same thing. I walked in and it was the same guys that, you know, uh, that were so supportive of Jim Armstrong on his quest and his journey. And I said, hey, guys, I was a tunnel instructor for like four or five years. Like, you don't have to worry about that, really. But I'm afraid of flying parachutes. Like, I'm, I'm terrified. And, Get this guy uh,
1: two instructors. <laughs>
0: And sure enough, I mean, you know, it's been about a year later. And I mean, it's just like coming back with a totally different attitude. Um, I feel like at 32 now, I'm a lot more teachable. Uh, I'm a lot more humble. I am uh, every time I feel like I'm starting to know what I'm doing under canopy and I'm feeling sort of confident and I feel like, you know, I'm entering that flow state. A couple jumps later, I do something a little stupid or I just misjudge something a little bit. It ends up being a little bit sketchy and it humbles me right back down to Mm, uh, the ground floor. Um, But I mean, learning to fly my canopy is now one of my absolute favorite things about skydiving. It's where I'm like putting in my most effort. It's it's where I'm finding the most joy, and uh, yeah. So I'm just like I'm s- just like Jim. I'm super grateful for the sport, and I'm super grateful for that drop zone in particular. And for any listeners that might have a kid or are a kid, well, if you're 16 or younger, what the heck are you doing listening to this show? We rated it explicit. This is not for you. But please keep listening. Yeah, we need those <laughs> we need those download numbers. Don't listen to your parents. Listen to the content clearinghouse. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> But the uh, this drops on in Delta is the only one that I'm aware of in the United States that will uh, legally jump your children below 18, and it is an amazing place with extremely experienced, qualified skydivers and people running it. I love the place. Um, so that's a tangent, but uh, yeah, that's that's what I wanted to get off my bare chest. <laughs> well, I you're glistening. <laughs>
1: sweat drenched chest well i can attest um that your attitude about skydiving has changed a lot since you've come back to the sport because um i remember in the beginning it's like you were saying like how you were using your flying ability to kind of like cover up the parts of your ego where you felt like you were lacking and i remember having a few talking twos with you, uh, in one particular instance, <laughs> we had a, uh, we had a, a skydive talking to, <laughs> well, there was one particular instance that has always stuck with me where, uh, at break off, like if you're not a skydiver, we typically break off like around 5,000 feet and everyone flattens out and flies away and gets as much horizontal separation as possible. And, uh, I remember seeing you break off vertically flying straight down. I would do it every set <laughs> yes. every single. So I remember telling you, I was like, Hey Brett, you need to break off horizontally. You need to get away because if one of us has a malfunction and we snivel down into you, you're underneath us, then that's going to cause a big problem for both of us if we collide. And you are like, oh, I like to get vertical separation. And I remember <laughs> face palming and saying, that's not how it
0: works. Okay. But I've I, noticed since you you've were come a- back, like you were absolutely correct. But I do want to say, so I used to be, every single skydive, I used to do, like, trips out to (laughs) Eloy with, like, Dwight Gretchen, if you remember that whole crew. Yeah. And I would pencil my body into, like, not even, like, a fast head down position. I'm talking, like, like a pencil. I called it my pencil position. And I would go head down as fast as I could. I would try to hit 200 in the, you know, between 5,000 and 3,000 from break off to pull altitude, I try to hit two hundred miles an hour, and I had an audible altimeter that would track my speed. And then I would peel out on my belly when I hit like when I felt like I hit like Mach eight. I'd peel out on my belly, and then I would sometimes pitch in the track. Maybe not the safest thing. So I'm glad I'm I've grown up a little bit, but it was fun. I have to say it was a great sensation on the body. I can't
1: imagine a thirty-two year old's spinal discs handling <laughs> that kind of deployment very well
0: but that's uh, why i have back problems it
1: could be also you worked at the wind tunnel for a long time yeah but that's probably that since you've come back i've noticed that you're you're a lot of things about you are more grown up and i think it has a lot to do with what happened to your job and uh i just noticed that you're just making more measured long-term decisions which is really what is necessary in skydiving so they're I've always thought, you know, there are a few different types of people that get into skydiving and about the most dangerous type is the thrill seeker. I mean, when you first start skydiving, of course, it's all about the thrills because you don't really understand much else. But skydiving is so full of thrills just in its natural state that if you go looking for additional thrills, you put yourself into very dangerous positions. And when anytime someone would tell me like, oh, I just like to get radical. I'm like, all right, well, I like to have at least three groups separating between me and you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because that's the kind of person that's not gonna be making the best decisions. And I've noticed like, since you've been back, it's not about that. You know, it's it's about like the, the mental aspect of... Improving yourself as a human, you know, it's like learning this extremely difficult thing, things that a skill that, you know, by all rights, it doesn't seem like a human should be able to do. But when you get down to it, we're very adept at flying. And now I just see you taking like the long-term approach of, of someone that wants to
0: survive and be a skydiver in, you know, 30, 40 years. You see this chest hair? Oh, Yeah. It, it it shows my my wisdom and maturity. <laughs>
1: yes, <laughs> you look like a silverback gorilla, but <laughs> on the front.
0: Well, I appreciate that input for sure. I just I absolutely love the sport, and it's been such a joy to come back with uh, a totally different approach. But I mean, what I mean, what can you expect from an eighteen-year-old? Like, uh, it's the mentality certain certainly shifts.
1: Yeah. I would you know whenever I uh, started living with you when you were still a young man I always <laughs> said wow Brett is the he's the most responsible early 20 something I've ever known he's the only 20 something that claims me on his taxes <laughs> As
0: but <a> dependent
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> but sadly that, uh, that kind of responsibility did not translate over into your skydiving, but I'm, I'm really <laughs> happy to see where you are now because now, I mean, it's like you have, you have everything in place to just keep getting better and better. And that's what you want. You want to be able to do that safely.
0: Yeah. Yeah, buddy. All right. Well, I can't wait to hear what's on your content circuit. I hope you've got some skydiving movies on there.
1: Oh man. Yep. I, if I was going over my content circuit from 20 years ago, before would be full Scott movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but as it stands, it's mostly stuff on prime or books. So, uh, actually there's a really amazing prime show that, uh, I saw it as an ad. Like usually I skip the ads at the beginning of whatever I'm watching, but I watched this because it said the most violent television show ever made. And I was like, wow, that sounds like it was made for Josh Evans, but it's called <laughs> gangs of London. And it's, uh, I think it's ten, 10 episodes and it's about, there's like this uh, this gang kingpin that gets killed and it opens up this, uh, this power vacuum in London and all these different uh, leaders in the underworld are all vying for position. And there are some amazing fight scenes. The story is great. It's kind of like a undercover police procedural meets crazy violent action show and uh yeah it it just takes a lot of awesome twists and turns and once i started i really couldn't put it down and that has not been my experience for a lot of prime originals so i can proudly put the cch stamp of approval on gangs of london if you have prime you should definitely be watching this show if you're into hyper violence hyper violence
0: Indeed, wow. that's a couple steps above ultra violence. It is. It's the best. Wow. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, do you have anything else on your content circuit? Because I got this. I got a long list, and I'm just waiting for you to ask.
1: Get to it, man. It's Let's like hear a, it.
0: It's like what do you call those? Uh, like a king king's announcement? You'd unfurl the a scroll. Hey, Brett, scroll. what's on your content circuit scroll? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, um, you know, we had a little hiatus from the show and, uh, this is not one of those times on the show where I just don't have anything on my content circuit. Cause I'm flying too much or I'm too busy. You see, I drove to Texas. That's a long drive and I'm sitting reserve. So I've done a little bit of flying, but I've also done a lot of sitting. So on the drive to Texas, uh, I finally listened to the Christopher Mellon interview on the Joe Rogan experience. He's, um, on a, I'm going to get this wrong. I think he's on the Intelligence Committee, uh, Senate Intelligence Committee. Does that sound right? I'm going to go with that. Sounds right to me. <laughs> uh, so this was actually recommended by uh, a mutual friend of ours that has a little inside perspective on the UAP phenomena. Um, so it's the Joe Rogan Experience podcast number 1645. I highly check uh, recommend people check it out for anybody that is interested in the subject matter. I followed that up with a podcast episode, Are We Alone in the Universe with Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's a Sam Harris episode where he interviews NDT, and I did not like that. I think Neil deGrasse Tyson is wrong, and I was super bummed on it. It's a bold Uh, stance. I don't think so in this case. I I think people that have looked into the UAP, UFO stuff at all will agree with me on that. Um, I started the Black Death series on last podcast on the left. Well, what did you find? uh, What what did you
1: think that uh, Neil deGrasse
0: Tyson was wrong about? I think that's an important thing to touch on. Well, uh, you know, he, it seemed like he talked for 20, 30 minutes about how, you know, biological, by other biological life, uh, not from this planet is super plausible and there's no way that it's not happening and uh, the, you talked about the Fermi paradox and just how many galaxies there are and how many habitable planets there must be and the expanse the of time and how we, you know, we've developed in such a short period of time compared to the vastness of the temporal vastness of the universe. But when it came to all the reports of UAPs, he kind of chuckles and thinks it's ridiculous and says, well, we all have cell phones. Uh, they all have pretty good cameras. How come we don't have any good footage? If they were actually here, certainly we would have tons of pictures and tons of footage. Or they just land in New York and announce themselves if that's, you know, I mean, it was totally crazy. Uh, they quoted a, um, a debunker on YouTube. I think it's, it's either Mike West or Mick West. And I actually did watch Mick West, West. I I did watch some of his YouTube videos. Um, You know, I tried to make it with an open mind because Sam Harris actually, who I kind of think of as like being very logical, very rational in his thought process. He kind of said, well, I think Mick West sort of debunked this, didn't he? And so I was like, oh, I got to check out these, this guy's videos. And, you know, it's just somebody that's like trying to explain away all these things with just, very outlandish theories and throwing away things like all of the eyewitness testimony, uh, eyewitness testimony of the pilots, and I'm talking specifically about the incidents on the east coast and on the west coast of uh, the Tic Tac, the Gimbal, all that flur video. Um, That's another
1: bold move.
0: Yeah, the these pilots that have thousands of hours in fighter jets, uh, they know what a bird looks like. They know what a balloon. They know a balloon. Can't zoom away and accelerate instantly. Um, so yeah, and so I don't know. It was it was uh, it was a little disappointing. I think Sam Harris seemed to be a little bit more reasonable or have a little bit more of an open mind, but he didn't really make any like claims one way or another. But after listening to a fantastic episode uh, from uh, Joe Rogan with Christopher Mellon, I wanted to just send that. To Sam and Neil (laughs) and say, hey, guys, you probably don't uh, get a lot of tweets from people. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) So anyway, uh, that's how I started on my Texas drive. Um, But the Black Death series on last podcast on the left is going to be phenomenal. So Uh, good. Been watching Loki on Disney+. Plus. So good. Best thing to come out of Marvel. Um, I've been watching some of those screen crush YouTube videos I like. That's about my nerd stuff. So about Loki. Um, I watched Invincible on Amazon Plus. So We're going to have good. to get into that later. <laughs> I think we might have that on the docket coming up soon. I think so. Uh, Ragnarok on Netflix. It's a foreign language Norwegian series. Uh, it's kind I of love a, subtitles. <laughs> if... If Thor was a dyslexic high schooler in (laughs) Edda, Norway, it is a pretty, pretty fun, pretty fantastic little retelling of some Norwegian mythology here. Uh, Bo Burnham's Inside. Gotta check that out. I'm uh, several chapters into uh, The Hell That Was Paradox Valley. And I've also been perusing. Oh, it's a book about... Paradox Valley, the the part of Colorado that I'm I'm living in. It,
1: why is it Paradox Valley? Is that so like an old pioneer reason, name?
0: It is an old pioneer name. I, I don't remember the person that named it that, but it was somebody. John named, Paradox named it after himself. <laughs> no, no. So he was a um, a surveyor. It was in like the eighteen seventies, eighteen sixties, I think. And the river, I think it's the Dolores River that runs um, not parallel to the valley, it runs perpendicular, and that's very unusual. And so that's how it got the name Paradox Valley. And there's this poem in there about how these Native Americans, these Ute Indians, uh, specifically how these Utes from the area have this folklore, this legend, that there was a tribe that was living peacefully on the Dolores River, until they got massacred overnight, and the Dolores River is now called like the River of Woes, Ooh. dude. It's it's a great you know the, it, they call it the Slaughterhouse of the West, Paradox Valley. It is no joke <laughs> oh, <yeah>. out there. <laughs> that a, is rough. It is a one of those uh, you know just happening times in the eighteen seventies. You know how it goes. Classic frontier times. <laughs> and uh, finally, I have been perusing some UAP documents on my content circuit. I don't want to sound like Jeremy Corbell or anything, but I do have a kind of an inside guy. And that's all I can say <laughs> about it.
1: <laughs> I think the whole debate about whether we've talked about this a lot, it, we've talked about this so much that we've stopped saying, say it for the podcast. And we just talked about it, <laughs> yeah. but um, the debate about whether these things are real, I feel like is, I think I feel like the world should be beyond that. The debate should be: What are they? Where are they from? Not if they're real. I think that that has been well established at this point. And you know, I'm I'm pretty convinced at this point. Whenever the uh, the big government drop, I mean, maybe some of it's already happened. I mean, I know a lot of it has, but I feel like once all of the information comes out. People like us are not going to be any closer to understanding anything that we really want to understand, you know, like where this stuff is coming from and what it is. I think most of what we're going to get from these declassified documents is, hey, this stuff is real, but we don't know what it is. So stop asking. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of the direction it's moving.
0: And I'm kind of leaning towards that being the truth. I can't imagine the government's going to show their entire hand but of course you know, not. Yeah. I don't I don't I, I'm not 100 percent convinced uh, that the stories about like, I don't know, the Palladians and the Greys and the I don't know. I mean, I I just like I'm starting from uh, a foundation of like, OK, the evidence is overwhelming. This is a it, this is non-human technology. Uh, it's been tracked on radar with eyeballs Um, from multiple vantage points, it's been happening for years and it does force us in my opinion, to look back on all those, you know, supposedly outlandish stories about abductions that do have a lot of credibility to them and sort of to look at them in a new light. But I, I think, you know, to give this topic the credibility that it deserves, we really should just stick to the things that have like super credible witnesses, uh, more than one source of you know information be it uh radar or uh, a ground-based and an error-based witness you know things of that nature but i mean that's that's happening like consistently now (laughs) like that's happening consistently so i agree it's uh neil degrasse tyson get your shit together guy (laughs) Well, speaking of having their shit together, I have uh, one more
1: thing on the content circuit. Nice. I got a a message here from Drano on Discord, and uh, he said, I wanted to read this before we go to break, but he said, uh, Josh's vomit comet honeymoon story was all tragedy and no triumph. That's a great (laughs) reference. And he said, it was super nice to hear some content related to musical artists. So he really liked the uh, OK Go episode. So maybe that's something we need to be on the lookout in the future
0: for more Musical acts that may fit the bill, something that we cover on this show. Ooh, I am an Android Lloyd Webber fan. I can't wait to talk about cats. Ooh. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> All right, let's take a quick break. And then when we get back, the fully clothed Josh Evans is going to get into some content. Ooh, content.
1: What are some assumptions people make about you? What do they assume about you because of your profession, appearance, hobbies, or tastes? And how many of those assumptions are actually wrong? My name is Dave Kimball, and I'm the host of the Don't Assume Podcast, a weekly show where my friends and I lay out all of our assumptions about one topic a week and invite in guest experts to validate or refute those assumptions. So if you want to check your own assumptions about doctors, racial division, skydiving, guns, flight attendants, or any number of other topics... Come check us out at, at don't assume podcast on Instagram and Facebook and find the Don't Assume Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you like to listen. The Don't Assume Podcast is streaming now.
0: You know what makes out of you and me. Yeah, you know what assuming makes out of you and me. Clear it! Okay, welcome back to the Content House, Josh, I can't wait to hear what you've got for us today. Well, put your listening <laughs> shirt on, Brett.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so today, I'm going to talk about a game. And if you've ever heard anything about this game, it's probably been bad. This game oh. has really bad reviews, had a horrible <laughs> launch, Bad sales. It's just bad. It sounds promising. <laughs> yes. Which is, I, you know, I like to take on some challenges around here. And the world has had it out for this game in a very internet kind of way. In a way only the internet can. Uh, and to be fair, that's not wholly unearned. Like this game's launch, it brings to light a lot of the problems with the video game industry right now. But it also brings to light a huge problem with anonymous opinions in this internet connected world. And that is the inability to forgive. I'd say that that is the internet's MO. Internet loves to hate.
0: I'm uh, I'm already pretty hot. I don't know if I can handle any more hot takes. (laughs) Oh, Brett. Well, maybe
1: I'll try to cool you off once I get going with why this is actually great. So the creators of this game, they totally bungled the launch. And I believe, at this point, they have redeemed themselves, and I want to set the record straight. So, the game I'm talking about today is Cyberpunk 2077. And this is, for anyone in the video game industry, if you haven't played the game, that's probably a bad buzzword. So, a little bit of background first about this game. Uh, Cyberpunk 2077... is a first person action RPG set in this high tech alternate timeline. And it's based on the tabletop RPG Cyberpunk created by Mike Pondsmith. And it's inspired and is also the inspiration for a lot of things like Blade Runner, The Matrix, Snow Crash, Shadowrun, any of the myriad of content that falls into the cyberpunk subgenre. And cyberpunk, as a subgenre of sci fi, is a dystopian, lawless world dominated by high tech computers and robotics. So it's kind of like. Steampunk, but with electronics and robot eyes and arms replaced with robot arms. (laughs) You get what I'm saying. (laughs) So uh, Mike Pondsmith, the creator of the Cyberpunk tabletop game, chose the developer CD Projekt Red to create this game because they were already fans. And he wanted someone who wasn't going to try to change the lore of the world around and CD Projekt Red is a Polish game developer best known for The Witcher series. It's a That's an action RPG series based on the Polish novels of the same name. And The Witcher 3 has been heralded as the greatest action RPG of all time. Basically the standard by which all other action RPGs are judged. So needless to say, expectations were very high for their follow-up game, Cyberpunk. And this game spent seven years in development, and it had already won hundreds of, reward, of awards before release, It seemed like a sure thing before it came out. And honestly, how could they fail? That's the way that (laughs) expectations work, right? Get your expectations up and you're never disappointed. The higher the better. Exactly. Yeah, that's just basic human nature. (laughs) So in this game, you play a merc who's basically a gun slash hacker slash driver slash best friend slash savior of the city for hire. And uh, his name is V and he starts out as he or she, depending on your preferences in the game, starts out as a nobody, basically a street kid with no rep. And his dream is to one day be somebody for the world of this game, Night City, to know his name. And this is a, a world of runaway technology. It's a world where everyone is so deep into high-tech gear that hacking is just second nature and uh, deep computer systems are a way of life and people with cybernetic limbs or four cybernetic limbs or an entire cybernetic body that is the standard like if you see a if you see a person in this world that doesn't have some sort of cybernetic augmentation they're a minority and as you you take on more and more side jobs and gigs in this world your your name starts to get around you start getting unsolicited messages from new clients and these clients start to rise in prominence until you start working for the gods of night city the the politicians and the rock stars and uh, it, that's a it's a very good narrative framing device to explain the common game trope of one character being exposed to all these different gameplay styles of driving and shooting and stealing. You know, these are all things that are fed to you through the, the various people who employ you throughout
0: Night City. I, this game was, I personally can't wait to get a cybernetic something. My God, Brett! I'm sure we're going to talk about that <laughs> a lot.
1: <laughs> so this game was originally slated for April 2020 release, and it was plagued by delays, as all these blockbuster AAA titles are. It was uh, first delayed to September, and then eventually December 2020. And CDPR, which I'll be referring to CD Project Red from now on, because that's a few less syllables. Uh, they received death threats over this last delay. Uh, it's It was probably a combination of the world's collective COVID anger and the internet's inability inability to deal with minor issues and <laughs> with anything other than childish petulance. The, that combination was uh, contributed a lot to how the public received these delays. But when it finally released, reviews were mixed at best. The game's story, its immersive world, the innovative side quest structure, those things were all highly praised, but the game's crafting and driving and combat were not well received. And then you couple that with some people uh, considering the game's unfinished state, uh, th- the instability and the bugginess at launch, and this caused all kinds of crashes and graphical glitches and game-breaking bugs that sometimes lock players out of story progression. And you see where the problems started to arise. Definitely. But this game was it was promoted as being a last-gen game playable on the Xbox 1 and PS4 with updated graphics for the new consoles or if you played like on a high-end PC, but in reality it was way too complex for the old consoles. So they could barely display the layered detailed world. The NPCs would appear as these blocky, textureless messes. The game would freeze up constantly. And this eventually resulted in CDPR having a class action lawsuit involving hundreds of thousands of people who purchased the game for last gen consoles and CDPR removing it from the PlayStation Network store completely. And as of this recording, it's still unavailable for digital purpose uh, purchase on the PlayStation Network. And they've stated that it will not return to the PSN store until all the bugs are fixed. And the Guardian, uh, they said this game was released in a shambles. But when I read that I was I did want to bring up why do people say it like that I've never understood why this saying is not in shambles is this you know what I'm talking say, about say it again they, it was released people say things like like in this they said it was released in a shambles in I've a always, shambles it
0: sounds like a typo I, wow I've seen that so many places in a and shambles I, in a shambles yeah and
1: I've always felt like maybe it's some weird obscure rule of English that I just don't understand. I, I would. Have,
0: I would have guessed it's in shambles. Maybe it's just an idiomatic expression. Yeah, that's what that must be. Or what like, it is you know, some kind of like more. Um, I don't know. More like. I, I'm not sure. That's some stupid old English thing. Yeah, but regardless.
1: CDPR definitely shot themselves in the foot by overhyping this game. And you combine that with everyone's expectations based on their previous games, and you had a recipe for one of the greatest game controversies of this decade. And this brings up a huge problem with game releases these days. So developers these days have such huge ambitions, such huge teams and budgets, that it seems like they can really barely keep up. Like, games are regularly released with day one patches which are these huge files have to be downloaded before the game can even be played and this happens because developers are under such monumental pressure to get the games out the door on time that they release them in this unfinished state on the disc and then they crunch all the way through the manufacturing and shipping process to get the final files out that will allow the unfinished game on the disc to be playable and as you can imagine consumers hate this People don't want to buy something that doesn't work and then have to spend several hours downloading another 20 or 30 gigabytes of data on day one just to play it. And this is what happened to Cyberpunk. The problem was that even the day one patch was not finished. And for all these reasons, I waited about six months before playing it. I actually got the PlayStation 4 version for Christmas and never even unwrapped it because honestly the reviews are so bad. And I know this sounds like this is the first episode ever of me just shitting on something. But it's not, I promise you.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, a, it's a shame that the game launched like this because the first thing anyone I've told that I'm playing Cyberpunk to, uh, the first thing they I've told that to they say is, I heard that game is unplayable. Like Mike Silva, our good friend, original crewbob member, who is a huge gamer, that was his exact response. He was like, oh, I heard that game sucked. And that's too bad because this game is arguably amazing. And now, I'm going to tell you why, Brett. So you can get off the edge of your seat, sit your sticky back down against that (laughs) that leather chair you're sitting in. I'm going to tell you why this game is great. It's
0: it's feeling better in here. And now I'm afraid he heard me and turned on the AC. (laughs) Well, that would be the best-case scenario. Is it? This is why... This is why I haven't said anything. I, I avoid conflict in a lot of in a lot of in a lot of uh, situations. He's such That's a why nice your life will too. never get better, Brett. Oh
1: my god. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm like I'm like the Cyberpunk 2077 just an unplayable human.
1: Yeah, I think your uh,
0: your conflict resolution needs a day 1 patch. <laughs> <laughs> I started in shambles and I ended a shambles. Yes. <laughs> The Brett Chisholm story. (laughs) Anyways, let's get back to this game.
1: So the star of Cyberpunk is the world, Night City. The world uh, is the star. It really is. It's a 29.12 square mile city. It's roughly the same footprint as Boulder, Colorado. And as far as games go, this is relatively small. But as you'll see, you'll make up uh, they make up for that footprint with density as the estimated population of Night City is roughly 200 million people. And as a side note, in a lot of these games, you use GPS to travel around. Mm-hmm. You absolutely have to have it in this world, but it does a disservice because you're always glancing from the game world to the GPS because the game world is so complicated that you're missing out, at least I found myself missing out on a lot of contextual clues and in the design of the world. And narratively, it would not work at all for you to live in this high-tech world, not have GPS. But I think the game would be better without it. That's just my own personal take because it would force you to use the signs and the sights of the world. And honestly, that seems like a weird complaint, but it's actually kind of a compliment because the world is so deep and detailed that I have found myself trying to operate without the GPS more and more.
0: But anyways, that's well, a sidebar. It, it sounds more accurate to me because I feel like I rely so heavily on the use of a GPS to get around that I am also missing contextual clues in my life. So it just seems realistic. <laughs> this is coming from a man that used to text us while he
1: was driving his motorcycle. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> wow, that 18-year-old Brett really... Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. It... I think the human mind has definitely been rewired by the smartphone. I mean, that's not that you don't have to put a shirt on for this, but this isn't that that hot of a take. I didn't come up with this, but I definitely feel things in my own mind, like my inability to dead reckon directions or remember directions. Like I used to be able to, when I was a kid, also I used to have, I used to feel like I was so good at
0: spelling and now Uh, I just feel like my phone keeps track of spelling it's, it's so funny that you say that because i'm actually i'm gonna go ahead and give myself a pat on the bare back here and say that i'm a great <laughs> speller um i've always been a great speller but i just don't trust myself because uh i i have i am fallible i have made mistakes and i've ruined a thank you card or a christmas card and sounds like a 32 year old <laughs> brett not an 18 year old brett talking right now had to get some white out or get a new card And so now to avoid that, I will just look up the word, uh, you know, I'll type it into the the Safari browser into Google on my phone. And, you know, 96% of the time, I was going to spell it correctly, but I just don't trust myself anymore. And so recently, just today, I was writing something and I was like, you know, how do I spell this word? And I told myself just... Just trust yourself, Brett. You know how to spell this word, for God's sakes! It's the overreliance. You earned it. <laughs> yeah, so that's an, uh, that's uh, it. Really does come out. It's like directions and spelling, for sure. When the, you uh the obvious when you
1: would white out something on a Christmas card, you're like, I'll just make this look like it's a snow scene. Like I did this on purpose.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you can you can turn anything into a snowman or a Santa face. Happy summer! Why is our <laughs> snow scene on this summer card? Yeah, <laughs> there's there's a great Mitch Hedberg joke about uh, uh, I don't remember the word that he misspells, but he's uh, he's uh, says something about uh, uh, <laughs> it's a steamboat joke. I don't I don't remember the joke. Gosh darn it. You sound like a grandma right now. <laughs> <laughs> Those Mitch Hedberg jokes were so my, funny. Just imagine My
1: favorite Mitch Hedberg joke is if you want to talk to me
0: after the show, I'll be <laughs> fucking surprised. <laughs> I drew a picture of an audience enjoying the show more on the back of my eyelids. <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, I rarely drive Hedberg joke hour. <laughs> I rarely drive steamboats dad something like that if you're a mitch hedberg uh, fan please find us on instagram at the content clearinghouse or email us at contentclearinghouse at gmail.com and tell us what the hell we're missing here because it's a great joke and we're blowing it good we're plug now
1: it. we don't have to do that at the end
0: perfect <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right let's get back to this game so like i was saying the star of this game is the world and they did not design a 2D world with some pop-out features. They built this layered, contextual world. It's dense to the point of confusion, but thoughtful enough that everything has a purpose. So every advertisement, every name on a building, every storefront is something real in the world. It has a backstory, and it's connected to every other thing. And at street level, the sun and sometimes even the weather is blotted out. And it's replaced by the facades of the lowest level of these mega buildings and the haphazard uh, crisscross pattern of the impossible to comprehend highway systems. And then the higher you go, the more connection you get to the outside world. And a fall from the top of one of the mega buildings, which I can attest has actually happened to me, it gives you this final tour of the socioeconomic structure of the city is you rapidly descend from the godly heights where all the rulers of night cities live, or night city live down to the perpetual twilight of the slums uh, slums below at street level, and it's like they built a city, and then they built another city on top of it, and then a third city on top of that, and it, it's just like such a marvel to behold that I've actually stopped using my car a lot of times and just walking because. Everywhere you go, you'll find some kind of weird alley or offshoot or like just a a small storefront or underneath the overhang of a mega building. You'll find like an entire market stuff you miss if you're just walking around or just driving. And when designing the look of the city, CDPR, they created several design philosophies to evolve the look. So I found this really cool video on YouTube, which we'll link in the show notes, that detailed the making of Night City. And they, they said there were several, uh, several philosophies. The first was entropism, which was an outdated, dilapidated, simple design. It was cheap and utilitarian, easy to put up and maintain. This is the, st- the type of architecture you see in the areas of the game that have been affected by earthquakes. And then there's Neo neokish, which is like the ritzy, naturalistic... Material dishonesty, basically, something we love on this show. Anything that involves a natural look, like wood grain or animal prints, these things are mostly extinct. So they're only for the most well-off, The again, the gods of Night City. Then there's neo-militarism, which is like slick, high-tech, clean. This is the style of the corporations. The megacorps kind of rule this world. Uh, It's flaunting the wealth and the security that that kind of uh, lifestyle brings. Then there's industrial, massive, stark, exposed, favela-style housing crammed in and around power plants and manufacturing, industrial waste runoff polluting the waterways. There's the abandoned look. It's old, unfinished, unrepaired, but still inhabited because everything is. It's only abandoned in the sense that no owner is doing upkeep, but since the city is so over overpopulated, every square inch has people living in it. And then there's the badlands. This is like the outskirts of the city the desert wasteland that surrounds everything. And it's populated by trailer parks, old rundown neighborhoods sporting last century homes and nomad camps. From miles away, you can see Night City skyline glowing on the horizon. And this creates a great sense of place. And then there's also the massive sprawling garbage dump, like literal mountains of trash. When you're far enough away that you can't make out the details, you think, oh, hey, there's some mountains out there. But as you get closer and closer, you realize that it's, just thousands of i mean it seems like square miles of garbage which is awesome because it it really like gives you a peek behind the facade of the world which is really interesting
0: you know when when you were first describing the uh, socioeconomic uh, status differences uh, in relation to like these mega skyscrapers at first i thought of dread and your excellent episode about dread but then it's total cyberpunk. Then I uh, my mind went to Altered Carbon because they, they they literally had like the upper echelon of society living at the tippy tops of these skyscrapers that were literally above the pollution layers <laughs> and then there's like the slums and the favelas at the ground floor and it's a great storytelling device. I mean it's so it's so literal and it's, it's just like applicable or I I don't know. It's just a, it's an accurate representation, I guess like the penthouse is on the top floor. That's just how life works.
1: And I think it's a very, uh, I think it's a very realistic idea of what the world could be like with the kind of like runaway commercialism and like the, the way that our, even our governments look out for the corporations in this world like you know COVID brought that to light with you know the stimulus packages and how so many billions of dollars went to you know make sure the corporations didn't fail and then you know the people on the street got 1200 bucks so here you go this
0: might cover your rent from three months ago wait are you you saying the big companies that donate millions of dollars to politicians are getting some sort of unfair benefit by these tell your back off Brett here comes another hot take
1: (laughs) I mean it's it's a very realistic outlook the only thing that's different about you know what our world could potentially be in a hundred years from a game like this or something like dread is you know in in this case the cybernetic limbs and computers in everyone's brain and who knows if that's even that far out of the own possibility. Oh, you it's, know, that's,
0: it is. I, you were the one on the landmine episode that's, you know, talked about these advancements in prosthetics. Um, I mean, it's right around the corner, buddy.
1: It really is. And this, I mean, this game really brings to light a lot of, uh, a lot of the scary ideas of what it would be like to have a chip in your brain. Yeah. Because Yikes. this is, uh, so there's a main storyline in this game. It sees you getting the digital ghost of this rock star named Johnny Silverhand played by Keanu Reeves. Shout out flip six, three hole. Uh, he's the guitarist for this band Samurai and he gets uploaded into your brain through a series of events. I won't spoil here, but this causes all kinds of problems for his consciousness, wrestling for the control of your body. And he appears as this augmented reality apparition that only you can see and you interact with him as if he was real. But, uh, you know, as you progress, you're trying to find a way to separate him from your mind and free his digital ghost. And this brings up these interesting philosophical uh, ideas, specifically about digitally uploading your consciousness. Like, would it still be a real person? And also, what would it be like to have a chip in your brain that could potentially be hacked? A big part of this game is you have these things called quick hacks, where you can upload viruses and demons into other characters oh, bodies God.
0: and upload cause, demons? that sounds horrifying
1: well a demon is it's like a it's like a computer program that right, right. does something something I'm not a computerologist
0: right. but it <laughs> no I got you it's like a, it, you're kind of like infecting a host with a uh, some sort of um, antagonistic programming exactly yeah it's, and it's like possession
1: this miles. right now is not something we have to worry about, but I know that I worry about things like my phone getting hacked, you know, cause I do pretty much everything that I do in the digital world gets filtered through my phone. And I'm sure that that's not something that's unique to me. That's what, that's what everyone with a phone does. And the only thing that really is protecting our body from that is that this is something we hold in our hand. But when it becomes, a consumery consumer rarely viable. Is that a word? I don't know. I'm not a speciologist yeah, either, sure. but when it comes becomes viable for, you know, it, it, it's easy for us to go out and get a chip implanted that it's going to open up all kinds of problems in this world. And I don't know that I would ever feel in this lifetime, knowing what I know about computers safe, no matter what the advertising material says that that kind of technology would be unhackable.
0: Well, I I don't think your fears are outlandish. I don't think they're unfounded. But I do think it doesn't take a chip to be hackable. I think that these uh, digital algorithms, these, you know, Instagram, it knows that I want a new bathing suit. And it has been pushing bathing suit ads on me like crazy. And guess what? I bought one. I bought one, Josh. I like we are hackable already. Oh, Just yeah. as biological entities. So uh, it's already happening sans chip.
1: But imagine when you have not only the social engineering aspect and the behavioral modification through uh, through clicks, but also the ability for like your cybernetic limb to stop functioning or to function on its own. Or like in this game where you can cause every bit of cyberware in a person's body to malfunction and essentially like shuts down their internal organs. It turns their brain off. Their eyes don't work anymore. Like these are the kind of scary things that would happen in a world like this. And to me, that has to also be offset against how badly I want an augmented reality <laughs> overlay in my life.
0: Or like if, I- uh, if, if you think that you're brain chip interface could get hacked to make you uh shut down limbs or like move in certain ways. Couldn't you also upload Kung Fu like Neo in the Matrix or maybe learn how to do high level dynamic flying or or mixed formation skydiving with just the tap of a button. Yeah. And that's why this is so fascinating because
1: I think that you would have to weigh all of those awesome things that could basically turn you into a superhero against the moment-to-moment stress that somebody's going to hack in and steal your identity or make your eyes stop working or upload some other consciousness into your brain. Like those are those are really crazy possibilities. But yeah. I, I feel like even having those fears, I would still be tempted to be like, Oh yeah, I'll get some new augmented reality eyes. That's something that I've always wanted to see. It's, it seems like it's worth the risk. Sign me and up. that's a, that's a, that's a really interesting dichotomy that I think we may be seeing this type of thing in our lifetime. Like, oh, I, when I think about people that, uh-huh. you know, grew up in or were born in the early 1900s. Like, people that live to be a hundred years old and they saw they saw you know the invention of the automobile they saw world war one and two happen all the technological advances that brought all the way through the digital age you couldn't even fathom or imagine what the world was going to be you know at the end of your lifetime and to us the life we're living right now, it seems so normal that, oh, yeah, we went from having 75-ohm twin flat-lead connectors in the back of our TV to everything being uh, delivered wirelessly over the air. Oh, yeah, that seems normal. But it's just because we've lived it moment to moment, and then when we're in our 90s, it's going to be a completely different world that we can't... I mean, without being a futurologist, you can't even... Conceptualize some of the things that are going to happen. My, I my, think it's exciting and scary.
0: It is exciting, and it is also very scary. Um, you know the 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 rate of change is uh, exponentially increasing. Change is happening faster and faster. But the one example I like to think about in terms of like somebody being you know seeing uh, the telegram and two world wars, like I think of the airplane, man, nineteen oh three. That's when the Wright brothers flew the first powered airplane. 1969, we were on the moon. You could remember both of those events in a lifetime. Like, that, and people did. People saw the Wright brothers fly an airplane, and then saw people walk on the moon. Space it with their space <laughs> age technology <laughs> that I know you love. <laughs> That's what war is good for. <laughs> Definitely. So the colder, were, the better. With the yes, wars.
1: exactly. That's where some good shit comes from. <laughs> so you were talking about uploading things into your body, becoming a superhero. I kind of fell into this superhero game that I created. This is what I love about oh, action I,
0: RPGs. I love when you invent games within games. This is well, GTA 4 for the listeners. Was it GTA 4 that we played? Po- probably. We, we never played the campaign. Josh and I probably logged hundreds of hours on this video game together and it was games that josh invented of just That's what's using great about sandbox open, games the open world format of the game and just inventing new missions and new games and it was honestly the best video game i've ever played was the game that josh invented <laughs> well you'll love this so is
1: my character became more powerful through a mix of cybernetic enhancements high power, iconic weaponry and a vault of unique offensive hacks. I literally became a superhero who I called the red samurai because I collected Johnny Silverhand's iconic clothing set, his jacket, his shirt, his pants, all emblazoned with a samurai logo. Samurai was his band. And I bought this red tactical samurai helmet and mask And then I I was using this murdered-out Lamborghini-style supercar that I found in a cave, along with this journal written by someone calling themselves Merc Man, which was like a clear Batman reference. So I applied cyberware that turned all my weapons non-lethal, and then I systematically started clearing the map of crime. So if I'd be driving to a mission and a crime would pop up, I would... Uh, hit the brakes and I'd be like, all right, time to deploy the red samurai. And if, if I was doing like a, a, a talkie mission, I'd have the helmet off, but I was like, I'm going to go fight some crime. I put the helmet on. So nobody knew who I was, and I use these high level cyber hacks to disable movement, short circuit, or system reset, large group of enemies. I would set off these chain of hacks that hit all simultaneously. Cause they're all slightly time delayed. So you could like load up your longer delayed hacks first And then when you run through like three or four of them, you load up a short one at the end and then they would all hit and like the whole group of enemies would fall over. And as that would happen, it would cause this mass panic. And then I would work my way in, picking off the enemies one by one, starting at a distance with sniper rifles and then working up till I was engaging in hand-to-hand fighting. And once the cybernetic superhero smoke cleared, I'd be
0: long gone, cruising (laughs) towards the next crime in my electronic Batmobile. I it was... (laughs) I, I think that this is tangible proof that uh, Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven. If you have a problem with it, you're the problem, not the game. You <laughs> exactly. have to think more you're like just Josh. To not play this playing game. it right. <laughs> that sounds like amazing. That's,
1: it's one of the coolest things about role playing experiences. You, with the sandbox of the world, you can create these completely emergent, unplanned by the developer gameplay styles. And that was just an option that I was able to create. It just naturally evolved as I was playing. And this, I mean, this game is like full of stuff like that. And I was able to set aside my own complaints. Like whenever I would see like these weird graphical glitches or the sound would stop working. You know, I had a time where all the sound was muted. It was only playing through one speaker and it sounded like it was like a thousand miles away and i had to basically hard reset the game another glitch that <laughs> caused me <laughs> just randomly to explode like i'd stepped in a landmine for no reason luckily this game has a very forgiving save system but i was able to delude myself in to just saying oh this is just v's optical sensors malfunctioning or something oh, oh yeah there's nice. a there's a Totally believable in game, in world reason why these things might be happening. And it has all to do with cyberware malfunctions. And when I started doing that too, I even kind of appreciated the glitches in this game because it kind of made sense that you would
0: have weird glitches in a world like this. This is like the opposite of a paranoid schizophrenic, like somebody that <laughs> finds like threatening <laughs> patterns within the most innocent things. You're like these these offensive glitches and you're finding like positive reasons for how they better fit within the narrative storytelling and how effective they are. Yeah, that's
1: part of the human condition. Delusional like justification.
0: <laughs> put that on a t-shirt and put it on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the content clearinghouse. Delusional justification. I love it. So there's one more thing before I wrap this up that I want to talk about. It's a really cool concept in this game. It's called a brain dance and it's essentially what replaces movies and television shows in this world. So this is, again, not a concept that cyberpunk invented. At least, I don't think they did because I've seen this same concept in the movie Strange Days. Uh, Have you seen Strange Days? It's like a a late 90s movie where um, they have these have these headsets on that allow them to record human experiences and it's like kind of like a murder mystery about a serial killer who's recording himself murdering victims and then he, he would play it back to the victim as they're being murdered it's really twisted but the idea of being able to record like not in high definition, but in like real experience. Like you put this headset on and you get to experience yeah. whatever was recorded. Sure. So that's essentially what a brain dance is. And you use brain dances in this game to solve crimes. So you have an editor mode for the brain dance. You can watch it like it's a movie or you can go into editor mode, which allows you to basically fly the the awareness bubble around whoever's was recording this thing you can step outside of their first person view and, it, and the world goes into kind of a fuzzy uh low resolution view but you can fly around and you can see things that they may not necessarily have been able to see you have to change the different layers of the brain dance and pick up like different audio cues or different thermal images or pick up things that may have been outside of like their visual perception and you solve crimes doing this which is such a cool gameplay element and they don't come up very often but every time they do you're like oh man this is going to be something really twisted because they they make a really good use of solving crimes through brain dance and that's mm. a it's a really unique gameplay element that i've never seen before and so i really appreciate things like that
0: in a game that's awesome this game sounds super fun i thought it looked awesome i i You know, expectations are already causing most of our issues in humanity. Uh, If you have no expectations, you'll never be disappointed. Delusional justification. (laughs) It's the content
1: clearinghouse way. (laughs) So if you had heard anything about this game, it almost certainly is bad. And admittedly, CDPR totally blew it at launch. They fell into so many of the traps that AAA game development has to contend with these days. It's too much complexity, too much hype, no, never enough time to bring these monumental games to life. But I I took a chance on it with my next-gen console. I have the Xbox Series X, which is a basic, basically a supercomputer. And I gave the game time to stabilize. And I'm glad I didn't write this game off based on the internet buzz because what I found was one of the most immersive, most original, uh, original and enjoyable RPGs I've ever played. And this game, more than any other has made me feel like I'm actually living in another reality. And this is a reality where everyone is a hacker, everyone has casually had limbs replaced, a world where people can live forever as digital ghosts and all the existentially horrific baggage that that carries with it. So I found this rich and detailed multi-level world that feels impossible and also inevitable at the same time. This is the kind of game that made me change my profile status to appear offline just so my friends wouldn't be tempting me to play online games with them simply so i could you know wouldn't have to pull myself away from that to play this and that is quite an accomplishment because i mainly play games to stay connected with friends and uh i'm sure they all think i'm an asshole right now but i gotta finish cyberpunk
0: yeah you do
1: and this this is a game that it's going to take me so long to beat because everything is so detailed. And I keep wanting to stop and absorb the world and the backstory and the design that's on display. So don't listen to the anti-hype. If you have a next-gen console or a high-end PC, play Cyberpunk. It's amazing. If you don't have either one of those things, get one. Just, you know, blow all your money so you can play Cyberpunk. It's worth it. And this is the kind of game that only comes out once in a generation. It's a shame more people haven't played it because all the bad press. So hopefully the content clearing house helps set you guys straight today. Play cyberpunk
0: 2077. Very nice. The content clearing house clearing the air and, uh, clearing out some of the baggage so we can get the clear truth. I think Taylor Swift said it best. Haters going to hate. So for all the listeners out there, whether you're flesh and blood or a digital ghost, (laughs) (laughs) You know you can trust Josh. You've, we've, we've been here. You know he's always It's well established. Well, thank you, Josh. I, that is just uh, unbelievable. I can't wait to, honestly, you know what? I want to get a cyber truck and then play Cyberpunk 2077 in it. I think they're going to be having that feature.
1: They kind of rhyme. You know what? Actually, I saw something so cyberpunk has become kind of a metric in pcs about Uh what a high-end pc is there was a time when that was a game called crisis like people would say like oh yeah is your computer fast can it run crisis well now they kind of say that about cyberpunk and i saw a video of cyberpunk running on a tesla so the tesla is officially a high-end gaming pc
0: it is You know, the Tesla is uh, probably one of the most expensive gaming consoles out there. (laughs) Indeed. Well, thank you, Josh. That was awesome. And thank you to the listeners uh, for joining us. We do have a quick announcement. Um, So Josh, he is uh, planning a vacation to Brownsville, Texas, I believe it is. (laughs) Don't Um, lie to them. (laughs) (laughs) So in the next month or so, I think we're only going to be releasing one episode, uh, you'll be all right. Just consider it a content sabbatical where you can catch up on all the backlog of episodes that you haven't gotten the chance to listen to and then read all the books and play all the video games and watch all the shows and movies that we recommend to you. We will be testing you on everything when we get back. There'll be Um, a (laughs) re-entry
1: exam, actually.
0: (laughs) It sounds just as painful and horrific as it sounds. Wait, that, did, that made no sense. Well, we're going to be back full force in July. We can't wait to see you. Uh, we really appreciate you listening to the show. And we'll see you soon.
1: When we were done recording, Brett was like, oh, I got to stretch. And when he stood up, he just put his <laughs> <laughs> his boxer brief cladding... <laughs> <laughs> waist section right in the camera view <laughs> he was not kidding he really
0: isn't wearing any clothes <laughs> i wear i have underwear on <laughs> what is the big deal This Nothing. This, this puritan but, society
1: is well speaking of puritan i remember one uh-huh. time when we lived together and it was hot as balls in your house and i was sitting around <laughs> in a living room just in a Swim trunks, and I remember you were very offended. So Brett, I am glad to see that in your old age you've become less puritanical I, and I, more I, embracing <laughs> of using your skin as an
0: atmospheric interface device. Absolutely, um, I, it's one of my favorite pictures of you is you smoking hookah with like a headset on, playing Xbox on the couch. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know why I was offended by that. The the human body, even mine, in this. Sort of uh, offensive, disgusting form. It's still somehow a beautiful meat bag <laughs> flower. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Why no, is your Why is your <laughs> podcast setup so
0: weird? Just because it's hot. Uh, so there's a, and okay. Keep in mind, I, this is a absolutely beautiful house. The host is wonderful. He is a fantastic guy. The walls um, are sweating. <laughs> and you know, I I did actually look up the Airbnb profile uh, for this particular place, and it this is on me because air conditioning is not listed as an amenity. Uh, it Free is, sauna. It is crossed out, and I did not crossed notice this. I, it is the, like because they list on uh, the website that there's like amenities and non amenities. This is not listed as an amenity, um, and I just didn't notice that. I guess I just assumed if you had like a modern house like you'd run the AC. Um, but I mean, it really, everything is wonderful. I think I just like to complain sometimes. But yeah, I, I because of the fan that's running in my bedroom constantly, it, the uh, podcasting setup was picking up a lot of noise. So hey, I have built a pillow fort and I'm sitting in a wicker chair, almost in the nude with a pillow fort around my laptop. It's kind of fun.
1: I hope you guys all appreciate the links that Brett goes to to bring this show to you every week. I yeah. actually, I know usually what I everything I say is sarcastic, but uh, I'm serious about that because with your travel
0: schedule, it is sometimes very difficult to record this show. You know, this time the schedule was not the problem; <laughs> <laughs> it was the air temperature. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna. I'll snap a pic. I'll snap a picture for the grams, so everybody can <laughs> appreciate it that Instagram might ban our profile, our content clearinghouse profile for inappropriate content. Too much skin. Too many nipples.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One too many.